0: Well, good morning. Glad you're with us today. Uh, Let's begin by word, uh, opening by word of prayer. God, how can it be that you would die for us? Lord, how much we have to be thankful for that we who were sinners with nothing to offer but our sin Receive life and light and righteousness. Lord, this morning, encourage the hearts of your people with your word. Lord, send your Holy Spirit in great measure this morning to give clarity to me as I speak and diligence to these people as they listen. Open your word to us, to our very hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, that's where we'll be this morning, Colossians chapter 3. We're continuing a series that we've been in Colossians for some time now, and this morning we'll find us in Colossians chapter 3. From A.D. 98 to about A.D. 117, in the Roman Empire, Trajan is the name of the emperor, of the Romans for that time period. One of his governors is named Pliny, known by history as Pliny the Younger. There's Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger, both of whom are known by history. He was a civil servant. He served as a governor in the region of Bithynia, so it's in modern-day Turkey. Uh, guys, I'm getting a little bit of a ring up here, um, so that would be super helpful. Yeah, that's, even, that's better already. Thank you. Thank um, you. And when he's in Bithynia, Pliny, this governor in the Roman Empire, he encounters for the first time Christians. So people who worship Jesus Christ. And again, this is in early 100, so this is not that long after Jesus has actually been on the earth. So Pliny writes to the emperor Trajan, reporting what he has seen with these Christians, how he's handled them. Remember, Christianity is not looked on favorably in the Roman Empire at this point. So Pliny has taken a lot of these Christians into custody and uh, he's asking Trajan, hey, Are the methods I'm using acceptable? What should I do with these Christians when I find them? Now, in the history of the Roman Empire, one little letter by one governor in one small region of the Roman Empire really isn't that meaningful historically. But for Christians, uh, this is actually a letter that gives us a lot of information. Why? Well, here, we get an extra-biblical, so outside of the Bible, non-Christian perspective on what worship was like for early Christians. Here's what Pliny says in his letter. Quote, they, these Christians, they are accustomed to meet on a fixed day of the week before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to some sort of God. And they bind themselves together by oath not to do some crime, but they bind themselves to not commit fraud, theft, adultery, nor to falsify trust. When this is over, it's their custom to depart and assemble again to partake together of food. End quote. Again, that's not giving you a lot of information if you're a Roman historian looking for information about Rome. But if you're a Christian looking for information about how early Christians worshipped, stuff like this gives us a wealth of information. So here's what it tells us. The first thing he says, this should be noted, is that Christians get together and when they worship, what do they do? They sing. Christians sing. The Christians, when they gathered 1,900 years ago, did almost exactly the same thing that we just finished doing today. Isn't that special? not that interesting? In a similar manner, directed towards the same person, Jesus Christ, Christians today, Christians then, Worship him through song. The church of Jesus Christ was and is and will be forever a singing church of Jesus Christ. 200 years later, we have a historian named Eusebius who says this, that early Christians would often be discovered by the Roman authorities and taken to prison and sometimes killed, and they were discovered because the noise they made as they sang yet they would not leave it off, Eusebius said. So imagine this. You're gathering, not in a nice, ornate building that's generally accepted by society, there's no fear of people coming in the back door and shutting this operation down. You're gathering in a small home, in a city where Christian worship is illegal, punishable even by death in some cases, and you know that if you're discovered, you could very well die. In fact, People that you know and are closely acquainted with have already in the recent weeks been dragged off and some of them killed. Why? Because they worship Christ. So now a dozen or so people gather quietly in this little home hoping to remain unnoticed and then each of them, hoping for secrecy, decides, now we sing. Now we open our mouths and we sing heartily and noisily. Risking their lives to sing. According to Eusebius' telling of the story, it's often that there's the loud knock at the door, the authorities come in, and the people are dragged away, some of them to their deaths. Here's the point. Martyr blood was spilled for the sake of Christian song. People died because they would not leave off singing to Christ in worship. Hundreds of years later, Benjamin Keach, a particular Baptist pastor in England, in the 1600s, said this, quote, singing of praises to God is the indispensable duty of all the Lord's people forever. You hear the absolute language there? All the Lord's people, forever. Indispensable duty, cannot be done away with. Singing is one of the most significant expressions of Christian obedience. And still, today, it's just understood to be part of what Christians do. You ask an unbeliever, what do Christian people do in their worship services? What is it that goes on in those buildings? One of the first things that even someone who's never been to church would understand is, well, I hear they sing. Um, I brought someone to, to Emmanuel one time uh, that had some experience with Catholicism growing up, but uh, not been in church for a long time, but they were interested. They said, you know, I've never met a Christian that. I kind of liked to be around and I like to be around you and your wife and especially I've never met a Baptist that I like to be around and you and your wife seem like nice people. I didn't think Baptists were nice people. Um, So they came to church with us and I asked them later, I was like, okay, so how did it uh, live up to your expectations? He said, well, it's kind of what I expected, a lot of singing. It's just what people understand Christians to do and there's a reason for that. Sincere, heartfelt singing is definitional to the Christian life. I don't think I'm overstating there. Definitional to the Christian life. Today, the reason we're talking about this, the preaching part of our worship service will largely be about the singing part of our worship service. For in our passage today, we have one of those Bible commands that we are to be a singing people. So let's read our passage together. In Colossians chapter three, verse 16. I'm gonna start in verse 12. These are verses that have already been covered, but I want to give us some context. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Guys, I'm so sorry. I feel so fussy when I do this. But again, the the ringing kind of persists a little bit. So if there's something you can do about that, great. If not... Uh, I'll be a man and just deal with it. Um, so with this passage, there's, there's three points that I think are expressed in this passage and three points that we're gonna deal with today. First, we'll look at the word of Christ. So what does that mean? That first part of that verse, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Then we'll look at the ministry of the Christian. Okay, so the verse goes on. Teaching, admonishing one another, all wisdom. And then finally, the song of the church. So the portion of the, of the passage for singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So first, the word of Christ, the ministry of the Christian, and the song of the church. Let's start with the word of Christ. The word of Christ is a little bit of an interesting phrase. It's not really a common phrase in the Bible, the word of Christ. And this kind of thing matters a lot because um, the New Testament was originally written in what language? Anybody know? Greek, yeah, So ancient Greek, there's a a style of Greek called Koine Greek, sort of commonplace, marketplace sort of Greek. Uh, So if you think about it historically, Alexander the Great conquers most of the known world. And what does he do? He, how we understand it now, Hellenizes the world. You might remember that from school, Hellenistic, that sort of thing. What does that mean? He spread Greek culture across most of the known world at that point. So a lot of the known world is speaking Greek, reading Greek, talking in Greek, among the other languages that people know. And so when the New Testament is written in that context later, what's it written in? What's written in Greek? So what we do now when we're reading the Bible, we'll say, okay, the word of Christ, that's an interesting phrase. I don't hear that used very much. What does that mean? It's helpful to go back and look at the Greek words and say, okay, are these Greek words used elsewhere in other places in Scripture? Uh, with the word of Christ, you only see it in one or two other places, um, And I'd like for us to do a little bit of reflecting on what it means. The most helpful definition I heard from one commentator, so men that study Greek and study the Bible and think about these things very, very deeply, said, quote, what does this mean? What refers to the gospel, the doctrine of Christ, or any truth which has Christ for its subject? Okay? So let's look at these piece by piece a little bit. The word of Christ refers largely to the gospel, The good news about Jesus. So what does it mean to have the gospel dwelling in us richly? So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So if the word of Christ is understood to be the message about Christ, the good news about Christ, the gospel of Christ, what does it mean to have the gospel dwelling in us and that richly? Well, I think partly at least it means to understand the gospel. And really, I mean to understand it to continually operate in a frame of mind that's conscious of the person of Christ and what he's done for us. To live in a state of gospel-mindedness, reflecting, thinking, going back over in our minds, rehearsing the truths of the gospel. So when we're thinking about the gospel dwelling in us richly, this isn't just an abstract idea about God being good and Jesus dying on a cross. This also doesn't mean just a mere ability to recite the facts surrounding the gospel. So, man is bad, God is good, man sins, Jesus dies, man believes, and man has life forever. That mere recitation of facts, I don't think that's what's meant by let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I think when Paul urges us to allow Christ's word to dwell in us, this is a personal recognition of the gospel's effect on me. Me. Not simply Christ died for sinners, but Christ died for this sinner. So consider the feeling of being publicly held accountable for your sin. Like, think of a wicked, evil, selfish thing that you have said, done, a way you've acted towards someone. Imagine that read out here publicly in front of everybody else. Everybody turns around and looks at you because you're the person that did this terrible thing that we're talking about right now. What kind of shame would that be? Have the eyes of everybody that you know on you realizing, oh, so this is what you're really like. Oh, this is what you do when you're alone. Oh, this is how you treat your wife when you're just in the home. Oh, this is how you act at work. Be shameful. Be shameful to have our darkest, most wicked thoughts, moments, words kind of broadcast in front of everybody. Well, Christian, one way to understand the gospel is to imagine that sort of thing and then get down into your heart the fact that Christ has taken that shame on himself, your shame on your behalf, and has instead given you life, freedom, and righteousness. So the most powerful being in the universe was your enemy. And now... He calls you son, daughter. Like there's so many ways of reflecting on and thinking about the gospel. The illustration is used all the time. The gospel is like a diamond. And light comes into it and it, it refracts, and there's beautiful kind of spectra, spectra and the way the, the light plays off of one another, the different angles of the diamond, you twist it a little bit, and now everything is different. The light just seems to move and be alive as the di- as you look at it from different angles. The gospel is much the same. Turn it over. Look at it another way. Think of it again. Reflect again this morning. Boy, I am really a sinner. My thoughts are evil. Like, catch a selfish thought as it passes through your mind and examine it and say, I just thought that. You're dishonest in an email. Hey, sorry, it's been a busy week. Sorry, I didn't get back to you. I mean, the week wasn't really that busy. You just didn't want to respond to the email. Catch that. I just lied. I was deceptive with somebody in order to boost my self-image so they don't see me as irresponsible. Like, catch these little things that happen in your life and reflect them and say, wow, I really am a sinner. And then, boom, let's reflect again. Christ forgives sinners. Wow. What have we done? We've turned the gospel over another way. We've looked at it in another way. I think this is partly what spiritual disciplines are for. When I say spiritual disciplines, I mean things that we institute in our lives, regular scheduled sort of things, that call our attention back to God, to Christ, to the word. Things that regularly call our minds back to things that stir up our affections for Christ. So we set times where we try to read the Bible every day. Times where, okay, we try to get into this rhythm where we pray at this time and this place every day. Church is on the calendar each week. Small group is on our calendar bi-weekly. What are these things? These are things that spur me on to greater love for Christ. And I work them into my day because we're so myopic we're so sort of single-minded that we only see what's right in front of us and so it's easy for us to become just engrossed in the tasks of a given day. And you'll kind of snap out of it and be like, man, it's been 12 hours since I even thought about the fact that God exists, that Christ is real, that I'm supposed to be governing my life in submission to the Bible. I've been so consumed with the, the things on my desk that I haven't really even spent time thinking about these, the, the, the things of Christ. That's what spiritual disciplines are for. They are like signposts that we put up on our daily schedule, on our daily route, to remind us of Christ and things above. Another way that this has been said in this chapter is to set our minds on things above. I think that gets at partly what it means to have the word of Christ dwelling in us. But I think that there's a larger meaning to this as well. I get a little bit nervous whenever I hear Bible teachers take a Bible phrase and just substitute it for some other word. For instance, it would be really, really easy for me to say, okay, the word of Christ, when we see this phrase here in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, just substitute word of Christ for the word gospel. But Paul, and I've read commentators that do that, but Paul has a word for gospel, and he didn't use it. He's used it in this book elsewhere, but he didn't use it here. So I don't think that we should be in the habit of saying, well, what Paul means here is gospel. I think it's a little bit broader than that. He uses the phrase, the word of Christ. Now, it's, I don't think it's wrong to say that Paul probably has the, the gospel in mind here. That's what I just said, the message about Christ. However, I think Paul has in mind here some effects of the gospel as well. So this is not disconnected from all the virtues we just read about in the verses previous. We shouldn't think, okay, the gospel should dwell in me. Well, I'm a Christian, I believe the gospel, check. Because I think Paul, given the context, has in view that Christians should have dwelling richly in them any truth, any doctrine that has Christ as its subject. True things about Christ. True things Christ has said. True reflections on what Christ has done. I think all of these are captured in this word of Christ, doctrine about Christ. Paul just told his readers to set their minds on things above where Christ is. This seems to be a similar phenomenon. Both of these things seem to be about getting our focus at things that are true about Christ. So, lastly, last thing we'll consider in this Word of Christ heading it's important to consider that this is a corporate command, not an isolated individual experience sort of command. Mutual virtues are still in focus here. Congregational community is still in focus. Remember, that's why I wanted to read verses 12 and onward because he's saying be kind to one another. be Christians, be compassionate to one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. It's in this context that Paul says let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Paul's context here is clearly corporate. And before that even, he just spoke about the unity of the body. You'll remember, if you were here, Pastor Alex's sermon on barbarians and Scythians, Greeks and and Jews, slave and free. This unity that's supposed to characterize the body of Christ, that's Paul's context here. And then even after this passage, he's gonna go on to talk about how different groups within the body interact with one another. So, context here is clearly corporate. Corporate community, congregational. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. English is a little bit ambiguous sometimes as a language. The, the second person pronoun, okay, I was once an English teacher. This is the most exciting part of the sermon for me, so just indulge me. Um, the second person pronoun. First person, I. Second person, you. You. Third person, he, she, they. Now, there are plural and there are singular pronouns. I, we. Uh, He, uh, they. You, you. (laughs) Right? I don't know who wrote this stuff, but there's a gap there. Okay? Uh, Greek does not have those same limitations. Many other languages don't have those same limitations. And in Greek here, the you here is the plural version of you. So he's not saying, let Christ dwell in you, sir. He's saying, let Christ dwell in you all. I'm not going to say y'all, okay? (laughs) I'm not going to put the word y'all in Paul's mouth 2,000 years ago. Saw some smiles, somebody was waiting on me to do it, not happening. Uh, But what Paul says here is, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly corporate context here second person plural pronoun and we even see that phrase one another show up in our passage in our verse what's the point? let me ask you this how does it change your understanding of that command let the word of Christ dwell in you richly to consider it in a community context instead of thinking okay Christ's word dwelling in me me and God individual experience I do this myself in my own heart What if instead we hear that command as a corporate command, like bear with one another, forgive one another, be bound together in love and perfect harmony, let Christ's peace rule in you, let Christ's word dwell in you. You're not just an individual Christian who loves the gospel here. You've joined a Christian people who together love the gospel and love one another, therefore. This is to be a church with a joyful understanding of Christ's work at the center of our corporate experience. Let me say that again. This is to be a church where at the center of our corporate experience is to be a joyful understanding of Christ and his work. Not just in gathered worship, but also in our conversations with one another. In the way we pray for one another. The way we rejoice with one another. The way we weep with one another. Members, in the way we fulfill our covenant obligations to one another, in the way we help one another live, and in the way we help one another die well as Christians. Do you see the corporate context that way? With this warmth, this depth, In all of these things and more, the word of Christ should dwell in us. The mind of Christ should be in us. As Christ was, so should we be, and we should be that richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, Paul has more to say in this passage about the corporate nature of letting Christ's word dwell in us. He goes on, number two, to the ministry of the Christian. So first, we talk about the word of Christ, what that means, what it does. Secondly, let's see how it is expressed in the ministry of the Christian. So let's look back at our text. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So he go- I, I say he goes on about the corporate nature of this command because this is where we see that one another phrase pop up, teaching and admonishing one another. Going back to grammar, pay attention. This is high-level stuff. I'm gonna bring up a word here, and a lot of preachers would not want to do this, to go into like the grammar of a passage. Here's the problem, though. God has communicated to us in a book. We've gotta be book people. No, it doesn't mean you have to be bookish. What that means, though, is you do need to give some thought about how words relate to one another in the Bible. So if you'll indulge me for just a minute or two, I need to explain something. I'm going to bring up a word that you've probably filed so far back in the archives of your mind shrouded in cobwebs, this word is in the back of your mind somewhere. Participle. I didn't intend for that to get a laugh. Somewhere, English teachers are just groaning, doubling over in pain. Participle. Sentences have verbs, right? So, uh, he ran to the store. What's the verb there? ran. It's the action that he's doing. He's running. It's a verb. Sometimes, though, verbs will look like other parts of speech. Sometimes verbs will look like nouns. Sometimes it looks like a verb, but it acts like an adjective. Let me give you an example. He likes running. What's the verb in this sentence? Likes. Likes. What's happening in this? See, you all got confident when I started saying that. You saw the L and you're like, likes. I knew it. You said running, didn't you? Not me. (laughs) Likes. That's what's happening in the sentence. He is liking something. You hear that? That's noun language. So even though the, the word running, something that we do, right? But in this sentence, who's running? Nobody. He likes a thing called running we have a verb acting like a noun there. Same thing can happen with an adjective, and this is where we have a participle in English. So, uh, he tripped over the broken pipe. So the pipe in the ground, it's broken, he trips over it. What's happening in the sentence? What's my verb? He tripped. That's the action that's happening. Over the broken pipe. Now, broken can be a verb, right? I have broken a rule. Uh, She has broken the, the, the twig. Uh, Broken can be a verb, but in this sentence, broken is what? It's modifying a noun. It's an adjective. That's what we call a participle in English. Broken, though it's usually a verb, is giving us information about the word pipe. The broken pipe. It's modifying it. It's explaining it a little bit more. Okay, We're we're almost to the end of the English part of this, I promise. In Greek, participle works a little bit differently. But still, it works more like an adverb, if that means anything to you. But instead of giving us information about a noun, a Greek participle can also give us information about verbs. It modifies the verb. Gives us information about the verb. Uh, it, it helps us understand more what the verb is saying. We have three participle. Here's why I bring this up. We have three participles in this passage, and I think it's important that you understand what the relationship is here. What's our verb here? Colossians 3.16. Let. Imperative verb you all let Christ's word dwell in you richly. Teaching, participle. Admonishing, participle. Singing, participle. Those words, we're back. It's done. Sigh of relief. Those three words, they're giving us more information about this command. They're filling in our understanding of what it means to let Christ's word dwell in us richly. Uh, Teaching, Admonishing, singing. It's like we have the command here, and each of the participles is a way or a a means of accomplishing that command. So, as the word of Christ abides in us, dwells in us, it does not stay there. Each of these commands is external, each of these participles, I should say, is external in expression. And in each, you use your mouth. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How does it dwell in me? It comes out of your mouth, right? It's reminiscent of what Jesus said, that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what's come, what comes out. Why? Because it's out of, the, out of the mouth that we see what's in the heart. So we use our mouth didactically in teaching, deliberately in admonition, musically in song. Truth about Christ is dwelling in our hearts and doing so richly, and part of that dwelling is going to be us expressing it. Uh, A quote by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise doesn't merely express the enjoyment. The praise completes the enjoyment. It is the enjoyment's appointed consummation. It's not out of a compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete in itself until it is is expressed. you understand what what Lewis is saying there? He's saying that it's not just I have joy, I enjoy something, I love something, and then I express that separate thing uh, by telling people about it. No, Lewis says that telling is part of the enjoyment. So when you taste, if you're sitting at the restaurant with someone that you love and you taste the steak and it's just marvelous, what's the first thing you're doing? You gotta try this. Why? Because seeing the enjoyment on their face, it's like, isn't it good? You enj- part of the enjoyment is enjoying it together. So if there's a movie that you really, really love, who do you want to watch it with? Someone who's never seen it before. Because th- in their enjoyment, it's like you're enjoying it all over again. Right? So what Lewis is getting at here, that these things are not just expressions of an inner reality, they're part and parcel with the inner reality itself. I say this to emphasize the connection between the word of Christ dwelling in us richly and then our teaching, admonishing, and singing about the word of Christ. Not separate things. The teaching, the admonishing, the singing are m- the manner in which the word of Christ exists in us. It's complicated, but it's, uh, it's valuable. Now let's look more closely at teaching and admonishing here. Teaching, nothing mysterious here. Uh, the Greek word is where we get our word didactic from. Has to do with teaching. So, this should really challenge the way we t- think about teaching in the local church. This is so important. Who is it that is supposed to teach in this church? Pastors, right? Elders? Well, I'm shooting that to pieces. I'm not an elder. The people up on stage, generally, are supposed to teach the rest of us. Sure, absolutely. Pastors are commanded to preach the word. Elders must be apt to teach. However, what does Paul say here? To teach to one another. The command is given to Christians, all of us. And the command is to teach whom? Christians, all of us. We are supposed to be teaching one another. Therefore, we are to be taught by one another. Well, what am I supposed to teach? I mean, do I prepare an outline? Like, what do I teach? You teach Christ. The word of Christ is dwelling richly in you. How so? Well, you're teaching your fellow Christians about Christ. You're being taught by your fellow Christians about Christ. Mark Pemberton has taught me about Christ. Mary Beth Van has taught me about Christ. Troy Shaw has taught me about Jesus. How? How? just talking, right? Brother, the Lord's so good to us. We are so sinful. Our desires are so wicked. But he's faithful to us. That's Troy Shaw teaching me. That's the word of Christ dwelling between Troy Shaw and I. Troy Shaw and me. (laughs) Sometimes my habits ruin Good things. That's an example of that. What's Troy doing in that scenario? Troy, I'm sorry to focus on you, brother, but this is, just, this is a real scenario that Troy and I have experienced. Troy's reminding me of something. He's teaching me something. He's calling my attention to Christ, that Christ is faithful to us, that you're a sinner, that I'm a sinner, but Christ is anyways good to us. What's happening there? I'm being taught. It's just a conversation in the breezeway. Teaching is happening. Rich dwelling of the word of Christ is happening between Troy and me. Troy, I'll stop focusing on you now, brother. So members of Emmanuel Church, don't just farm out the teaching responsibilities to the elders or to the extroverts. This passage illustrates an every member sort of ministry in which each of us is contributing to the service of God towards people in the church. Now, it can't just be from the hip and thoughtless. This has to be governed by wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. What's worse than an unwise person trying to teach you something? Right? Sitting there groaning the whole time. Good grief, yeah, okay, you're gonna tell me. Okay. So our teaching one another must be governed by wisdom, by discretion. Can't be thoughtless. Or merely spontaneous. So, you, each of you, each of us Christians, call the minds and hearts of your fellow Christians to Christ. How? Just talking. I think that's a, that's a real barometer of the maturity of this church. A lot of ground can get covered just by the question, How are you? Right? Boom, we can go some really deep, spiritual, meaningful places just by saying, Hey, brother, how are you doing? How's your family? You busy lately? Feel too busy? These kinds of questions get at spiritual matters. That's one thing that I think this church does really well. Admonishing. Let me just say briefly about admonishing. Different than teaching. Not synonymous. Teaching is more positive, constructive. Admonishing is, by nature, more negative and confrontational. It's rebuke. Paul uses these same two words in conjunction in Colossians. In another place. It's in chapter 128, except there, it's not translated as teaching and admonishing, it's translated as teaching and warning. Same Greek word, translated a little bit differently. An admonition is a warning, it's a caution, slightly different than teaching. But just like teaching, this is our, apparently our responsibility to one another, to admonish, to warn, to caution each other. This command is given to us to practice among one another. Now let me say one quick word about admonishing. Very, very difficult to do. You know how difficult it is to go and warn a fellow Christian about something that's going on in their lives? How difficult it is to be warned about something that, that you're doing or that you're allowing to happen in your life? To say, I love you, brother, love you, sister, but I think you're drifting from obedience here. That can easily be fraught with bitterness, division, pride, jealousy. And if we, if we were of the world, it would be so. But you are a Christian. So definitionally, that means that you sincerely own up to the fact that you're a sinner. Otherwise, you're not a Christian. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That right there by itself, forget about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a union with Christ, or the union that we have in Christ, Just the self-acknowledgement of sin should make those sorts of conversations a lot easier. Fortunately, the passage helps us, again, by saying, do this in all wisdom. So if you're in a situation where you have to approach a brother or sister about their sin, Paul says you must allow that conversation to be governed by wisdom. In fact, by all wisdom. Act very wisely. Use great discretion. Let your speech be exceedingly graceful. Remember, forgiving one another, bearing with one another. If anyone has a plaint against each other, we forgive. It's in that context that Paul says, admonish one another. So it's to be done in wisdom, bound together in harmony, clothed in love that we admonish. Uh, Finally, let's look at the song of the church. So we're teaching and admonishing one another. It's the ministry of the Christian. We're, this is all coming from the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. It's the word of Christ. Finally, let's look at the song of the church. In fact, singing is one of the ways in which we teach and admonish. Teaching is one of the things that we're doing when we're singing. Your songs are instructive, so let's make them true. This is why Emmanuel Church does a fantastic job of striving for theological precision in our songs. Theological error in our music can be as harmful as theological error from the pulpit. Why? Songs get ingrained in there. Songs are tied to memory. That's one of the reasons we attach words to music and melody in the first place. So I've never heard a kid recite their ABCs. They sing their ABCs. Why? Music aids memory. So theological error or theological ambiguity in our music can quickly become ingrained in the church's DNA in a harmful way. But if our song is flowing from the word of Christ, dwelling in us richly, that should place a high standard on the songs we sing. We should expect fullness of doctrine, fullness of word in our music. Not only are the songs instructive, singing itself is instructive. Think about that. Not just the song, but the the act of singing is instructive. Uh, One thing I think that's pretty unique about Emmanuel is that children five and up are typically in worship with us. I think that's great. My wife and I, and this is just a personal conviction we have, this isn't a a teaching of the church by any stretch of the imagination, uh, we keep our almost two-year-old son with us in worship, typically. He's the one that was making so much noise earlier, so you'll notice it's a lot more quiet in here now. Uh, They're probably in the overflow room. But why do we keep him in here? He can't understand the vast majority of the words that are being said when Alex or I preach. He can't understand the words that are coming in the music. That's going right over his head. But he can still be taught by our singing. We've all been sitting behind small children in church. What do they do? They stare at you. They look. You look back, you may wave, and then it just gets awkward. But what are they doing? They're taking things in. Sponges. Parents, you know this. Where in the world did my child pick that up? They saw it. They witnessed it. They heard it somewhere. Maybe only once, but enough to replicate it. And what do they see when they look around? They see mommy and daddy worshiping God. And not only does he see that week by week, week in, week out, mommy and daddy worshiping God, he notices everyone around him. People that he knows from other contexts, maybe. I was just in that person's house. But people acted differently in this room. People act differently when, when stuff is going on in here. This context is unique. There's something about this context that's different. Sure, they may miss most of the, the content that's shared. It's going right over their heads. But even music itself is meaningful. That's why music is such a cultural force. A, a culture's music can often serve as a barometer. You live in an ordered, uh, conventional society, the music reflects that. You live in an anti-establishment, rebellious sort of age, the music reflects that too. The music will likely reject patterns and throw off order in that case. Even nihilistic people who deny any meaning in the universe will still find music meaningful. Music has a way of penetrating the mind and heart more quickly than rational words do. That's why Augustine, a saint from the fifth century, said this, God, seeing the soul of mankind struggling in the way of godliness, being inclined to the delights of the world, the Holy Ghost chose to mix the power of his doctrine with sweet singing. So that while the soul is melted by the sweetness of the song, the hearing of the divine word might be engrafted with profit. So the, the verse, the song, the melody penetrates the heart and makes us receptive to understand the the rational part, the the words, the, the lyrics. So the singers are instructive, not just the songs. Children can pick up on facial expressions, tone, body language even. And the Holy Spirit may be pleased to use these things in a preparatory fashion, cultivating in little hearts reverence and recognition that what happens in this room on Sundays is special, sacred, different, As we sing to God, we instruct even the littlest minds among us, this is how we worship God. Our corporate worship is clearly instructive. Another thing about it that Paul mentions here, and I won't make much of this, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Commentators are sort of all over the place on the distinctions between those things. Are they different? Are they sort of the same? Uh, So I won't speak authoritatively on that. I'll say this, though. There is apparently variety in the songs we sing, And this is one of the passages that has led Emmanuel Church to increasingly sing more of the psalms directly. So when you see song titles up on the screens or in your bulletin and you notice in parentheses, Psalm 130, Psalm 100, Psalm 60, that's very intentional. That's coming from a place of biblical conviction. It's not just incidental. Emmanuel Church believes we should be singing more and more the psalms. Finally, Singing is the final way in which Paul qualifies this original command to let Christ's word dwell in us richly. Singing is is tied to that let Christ's word dwell in us. Church, our song is to be the outpouring of Christ's word dwelling richly in us. So let me take this opportunity to encourage you. Sing. Rejoice. Exult in God and the gospel when we open our mouths to sing together. Lackluster mumbling is not singing. Apathetic, unenthused, slight movement of the lips, that's not singing. It's not reflective of Christ's word dwelling richly in us. The Bible is overflowing with commands and encouragements and admonitions about singing. Christians are singing people. And what could be a better subject for song than I was once dead and now I'm alive? I was blind, now I see. I was lost, now I'm found. What better subject is there for music? Who should be a happier singer than one who has been rescued from fiery death? Therefore, it is in the church, in this church, that we should find each person heartily engaged in praise to God. There are many of you who have just started coming to Emmanuel in the past year or so. Welcome. You may have noticed this is a singing church. One of the things that my wife and I noticed when we moved back to this area and we looked around at a couple different churches, we're looking around, nobody's singing. We walked into a manual church. We happened to walk in the the week before it constituted as an actual church. We're meeting right below us right now in the fellowship hall, probably 30 people in the room. And my wife and I were overcome by the hardiness of the singing. Been in churches with thousands of people that didn't get as much oomph out of the singing as these 30 people did in the fellowship hall. From the beginning, this has been a defining factor of Emmanuel Church since before the beginning. It's the week before Emmanuel Church actually constituted and said, we're a church. Therefore, let's continue, Emmanuel Church, to be a singing church. May people that visit us be struck by the singing. Not the performance, the singing, the heartfelt singing. Not the quality. Boy, they've got good voices. But boy, they've got voices. They sing. J.I. Packer said, any local church anywhere that is spiritually alive will undoubtedly take its singing very seriously indeed. God is honored and edified with hearty and thankful singing. So in closing, let's review. The word of Christ dwells with us. When we have a clear understanding of Christ, for our many needs. If we're honest about our sin, we'll be exultant about our Savior. Christian, if you're not thankful in your are singing, you're not thinking about Jesus. It's that simple. This deep understanding of Christ and his message finds its necessary expression through mutual teaching, mutual admonition, and sincere, heartfelt singing. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, that called order out of chaos, light out of darkness. We find in the New Testament that that word was Christ himself. So too now, may the word of Christ, the logos, same word, of Christ, in us bring forth words. So as the word brought forth order from darkness, now let the word in us bring out of us celebration, worship, gladness, and truth. Didactic words, stern warning words, and celebratory words of song. Christians, teach, admonish, sing, for by so doing, you mutually help one another to a richer experience of Christ and His Word. Let's pray. God, without you, the word of Christ would not dwell in us richly, not dwell in us at all. Our natural minds are hostile to you, hostile to Christ. We don't want to be told what to do or who to be, but Lord, you have allowed the word of Christ to enter into our hearts and to dwell there richly. So Lord, may that be so. May the word of Christ dwell among the people of Emmanuel Church May that find expression in our love of speaking the truth to one another. In constructive teaching situations, in difficult confrontational situations, God, give us grace to steward those situations well. Give us wisdom and discretion to say the right things at the right time to the right people. And then God, give us hearts that love song, that love to sing. We have so much to sing about and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.